Hi, everyone. Welcome to Finding Anchor, Parenting in the New Non-Normal, a podcast for parents and their teens. My name is Tim Cavell. And I'm Phyllis Fagel. Tim and I are both authors and therapists who work with parents, teens, and families. I wrote the book, Middle School Matters, The 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond, and How Parents Can Help. And I wrote a book for therapists called Working with Parents of Aggressive Children. We both also work in schools. Phyllis is the counselor at Sheridan School, a K-8 school in Washington, D.C., and I teach at the University of Arkansas in the Department of Psychological Science. The past year has been hard on many of us. We are still dealing with a global pandemic, even after months of being locked down and staying socially distanced. Our aim with each podcast episode is to offer support, information, hope, and affirmation to parents and teens, especially those who are struggling emotionally during these tough times. Finding Anchor is a five-part limited series presented by Trestle Tree. New episodes will air every Wednesday. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you do your listening. I am here with Dr. Mary Alvord, who I have known as a colleague and friend for a long time. She has been a practicing psychologist for more than 40 years, so you're in for a treat today. She is the director of a large mental health group practice in Maryland. She is known and has received many awards from the APA for her innovations in helping promote children's mental health. She's the co-author of The Resilience Builder Curriculum and Conquer Negative Thinking for Teens. She recently founded the nonprofit called Resilience Across Borders to help kids' mental health. Mary, I'm so glad to have you join us today. For those who don't know Dr. Alvar, she is, I would dare say, one of the best-known clinical child and adolescent psychologists in our country. She's got just an incredible reputation, and she has helped so many people. So it's a it's a real pleasure uh, to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's always a pleasure, especially to talk with parents. You bet. One thing that Phyllis omitted from your introduction was that you're expecting to have a new grandchild. Yeah. So, you know, I come about this as being a psychologist for a very long time. Love what I do because it is also part of life. And I have raised with my husband three now adult children who are launching their lives as well. So it's exciting to see all of those changes and the different stages of life. Mary, I am hoping that today you can help parents think about the past year in a different light. I think many parents are worried that the only thing that has happened is that their kids have suffered setbacks, losses, disappointments, quote unquote, learning loss. And even kids themselves are struggling with the situation and where they are right now. I had a student come to see me today, a middle schooler, who told me that she was really feeling foggy, that she couldn't figure out what was going on in class. And not only that, but she felt like she couldn't ask because she was so unfocused, she wasn't even sure what she had missed and was afraid that if she asked a question, it might have been one that had been answered just two minutes earlier. And then when she goes home, her parents are giving her a hard time for dropping balls, for not handing in work, which she feels is really largely related to the fact that she had been virtual and used to just pressing a button to submit things. 
And now she has to remember to print it out, put it in her bag, take it in. And so she's feeling kind of incompetent herself. Her parents are worrying about her. How can we frame this in a way that is helpful for both parents and kids? It's illustrative of so much of what's going on this year and the constant transitions. So I think we need to look at this actually now more than a year where from day to day, we haven't known what's going on. And for schools in particular, sometimes the students are virtual and then the school decides to go hybrid and then they're, nope, the surge, or we had too many cases and they switch back and forth. And as a parent, I think it's important to acknowledge how difficult it is to be that elastic. We wanna teach them to be flexible, but it's been very difficult. We know one of my passions and areas of interest is resilience. I think the good news through all of this is that we can build those resilience skills, those resilience muscles, and girls, like you just mentioned, that you know when we think of having challenges, we can frame them as these are specific challenges during a specific time, and it's not forever. We also can learn to problem solve. And so as a parent, we're trying to incorporate that into discussions, make sure kids don't feel shamed so they can be open to discussing any of these concerns they have with us. I have shared this with Phyllis before that the thing I've witnessed that recurs among people that are struggling is sort of overlooking the fact that we are in a really difficult situation here with this pandemic. And I say that even though it's rather obvious because there's a tendency on the part of us humans when we live together and we may get grumpy or down or upset to blame the people we're living with as opposed to the situation that we're living in. I have found myself frequently reminding people that this is a tough situation in COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown are really the bad actors here. But the other thing about this being perhaps an opportunity for resilience, and I'm wondering if you could comment on this, is that we're all in the learning laboratory for resilience. It's not just one of us struggling, and which can be real easy at that point to say, what's wrong with me? As opposed to we collectively are being challenged here. That's a great point. That is my motto. You are not alone. We are not alone. We're all going through this, and we're not just going through this in this country. We're going through this as a planet all of these different uh, stresses that play a part. I wanted to touch on, you know, you were talking about the blame. Part of resilience is acknowledging and believing that while you can't control so much of what goes in your life, there are many aspects that you can control. And so we need to focus on what's going well. But when it comes to blaming, I often, uh, in my Conquer Negative Thinking book for teens, just because this comes up a lot with teens, I often say, draw a picture, a circle like a pie. And when you're talking about blame, make sure that you talk about responsibility and context. And so sometimes it's the bad weather that we can't go out or we can't do things, or it's other circumstances and of course, the pandemic has challenged us in so many ways, the isolation, the inability to see family, and it has changed over time. You know, with children and teens, peers are so incredibly important. 
And we know from a resilience standpoint that it's important for them to develop the sharing, taking turns, learning to trust the back and forth. And that has been thwarted to a certain extent. We can think of alternatives, and this is where the reframe is, given that it's very difficult and there is more anxiety and sadness and the host of problems and feelings that we're all in. It is also true that we can control some things and there are actually some silver linings and some maybe takeaways that we want to look at, some gains that we have made during this time. I love that. And actually, I was thinking about that in the context of the school day recently, because in order to accommodate all of the students getting a break outside, and we can't have all of the cohorts on the blacktop at the same time, the school changed the routine and incorporated a post-lunch walk through the neighborhood. The kids love it. And we never would have even tried it or even considered doing such a thing prior to the pandemic. So I think it's such great advice to look at the positives that have emerged from this. I've also talked to principals at various schools who have incorporated more fun and play because they recognize that kids need that kind of novelty and levity right now. But they are telling me that they can't believe they haven't been doing this all along. Like, why haven't we been playing these games with kids? Why haven't we been taking a break to go outside? So I love that reframe. The New York Times just had an article that was somewhat controversial because it suggested because emotions are contagious, that kids' well-being is entirely dependent on whether or not their parents can manage the stress well, which really created a situation where a lot of parents felt like they were set up to fail. Do you have any advice for parents for how they can walk the line between being happy and resilient themselves and modeling that behavior while not being inauthentic or feeling like they have to pretend they're something they're not? Well, I think it's important, you know, part of parenting is helping our children learn that we make mistakes too, that mistakes are part of life. We have challenges that are very difficult. And at the same time, we try to improve ourselves or to make changes. So again, it's modeling for the kids. We're not perfect. And we don't want them to be perfect because you know what? That's a setup. There is no such thing as perfect. We try to be the best that we can be. That's the message to kids. We try to do as best we can. This is how we're coping. This is our value system in our family. This may be a different value system from another family, but this is what we're doing. And we're not happy all the time. No one is joyful all the time. But we have a range of emotions. As parents, you know, we're blamed a lot. When I started years ago, they blamed the moms for everything. And then they got, you know, the developmental psychologist said, okay, it's not all just the moms. It's a shared responsibility. And with the resilience field, it's not all just the parents. It's who's in the community. It's what other caretakers are there what other influences are in their life? It does take a village. And unfortunately, our villages during the pandemic have been very small pods, if we're even that lucky. So that's been part of the breakdown. So I really protest uh, wildly when parents are blamed for things because we love our kids. We do the best that we can. 
this has been a lot to put on parents. You know, parents are working virtually while there's no childcare, while there's virtual school, nobody could come in the house. So you're taking care of everything. It's really not fair to put the blame on any one system. And just like Tim said in the beginning, you know, and my blame pie, it's not any one factor. It's how do we look at this as the many ingredients that go into tomato sauce. <laughs> it's not just tomatoes that make it good. I love that. Mary, you touched upon parents' role in helping children process and manage their emotions. And that's an interesting area within science because most of the efforts to help parents have tended to emphasize how to help parents with discipline, with behavior. And we've been slow to arrive at the need to help parents guide their children with emotions. And now some of that work is being done. But I'm curious, do you have any go-to sort of strategies, things that you do or offer to parents to help them help their children with their emotional struggles? First, it starts with the parents taking care of themselves. And so just like the analogy of the oxygen mask, which is maybe overused, but I think it's a wise analogy because we need to take care of ourselves. And where does that begin? That begins with adequate sleep, adequate good sleep. We so often overlook that. It's a basic eating and sleeping properly because when we sleep and eat well, and adequately, we can think more clearly, but it also affects our moods. We see it with young kids. They are hungry and they fall apart and have a temper tantrum or start getting irritable. The same is true for adults. I think the go-to is parents take care of yourselves so that you can then guide your children and guide them with a realistic notion. Optimistic thinking is part of resilience, but optimistic thinking isn't, oh, everything is just so great. It's this part is really hard, but most of what went on or a lot of what went on really worked well and we were able to do X, Y, and Z. Because we also know that if we think today about even the what we call so-so moments, doesn't always have to be happy moments, what do we remember the next day is that it was a pretty good day. But if we focus on sort of that negative, then we get stuck in that. And that's what we carry forward. So I try to help parents, A, take care of themselves and B, impart sort of an array of emotional experience and the ability to problem solve and figure things out. Challenges are not always obstacles. Challenges can be exciting. It's like, all right, we have a challenge to face. Let's see what we can do. I sometimes have to help a student clarify if they're actually anxious or if maybe they're excited because kids have such a hard time delineating between emotions. And as you were talking about challenging negative thinking, and I know you do a lot of work with kids on helping them think about pulling their thoughts back to the center, I was thinking about the social piece. So one of the other things I've been seeing a lot of is sensitivity. We've been back in person full time now for just over a week. Before that, we were hybrid. So everyone is exhausted. You're so right about how important sleep is. Everybody is trying to figure out where they fit in the social hierarchy. It's like the first week of school all over again. And I've had students tell me, you know, I was talking to him and he just ignored me. Come to find out he didn't ignore. He literally didn't hear because the mask was muffling the sound. 
I had another student who felt like somebody was crowding them, that they were trying really hard to impress them. He said, it's because I'm so cool. So he felt pretty good about himself, but was kind of irritated with this other student. And I asked the student who was complaining if it was possible that maybe he was missing those social cues that he would have picked up on in ordinary times, again, because we're standing at a distance, we've got a mask, everyone's a little bit out of practice. It is hard to help kids recalibrate socially when things don't go wrong, even pre-pandemic. And now I feel like it's exponentially harder. What are your go-to tips for parents? Their kid comes home and they are just distraught over something that happened at school. So often we get stuck in assuming certain things happen. And with teens, you know, you text and you don't get a text back immediately and they're already thinking that their friends hate them and they have no friends. So we tend to catastrophize and jump to conclusions. And in terms of the social interactions, it is so much harder now trying to figure out because you're not able to read all the social cues, the facial cues, the gestures because of masks. And as you said, the distancing. So I think the number one thing is to say, you know what, we need to be kind to one another now because we're all having a hard time with this. And I bet this other kid or these other kids are also having a hard time. So you think X happened. You think he was ignoring you. What else do you think might have been going on? Let's think about all the other possibilities. I remember Phyllis is a big Twitter person and she tweeted something about plans A to B and someone said, well, the alphabet goes to Z and I use that now. I say, hey, what are explanations A, B and C all the way to Z? Maybe we can't think as far as Z, but maybe we can get to K because it helps us, first of all, understand perspective from other people's views. And for kids, I say, look, if you look at a house and you see the front door, right? And you see the windows. If you look at the side of the house, it looks very different. It may not have a front door. Is it the same house? It's the same house. How you look at something may really be different, but I love just brainstorming with kids. of what are other possibilities so they don't get stuck? And, you know, we really want them to be able to think flexibly and not just like that there's one answer or one possibility. Finding Anchor, Parenting in the New Non-Normal is brought to you by Trussell Tree, a health transformation company founded on the belief that anyone, regardless of their level of motivation, can change difficult health behaviors and sustain those changes long-term. For the past 20 years, Trussell Tree has helped employers lower their healthcare costs through engaging and influencing employees and family members to holistically improve health conditions such as diabetes, obesity, stress, high blood pressure, and tobacco addiction. A supporting sponsor for this podcast is Foreign Service Benefit Plan, focusing on the mental wellness for all members. To learn more about Trussell Tree, visit www.trusselltree.com. That's www.trusselltree.com. And now back to the show. You are both referring primarily to younger kids, tweens or teens. But I can tell you, as someone who's a university instructor, college kids are struggling. I've had some in my small senior seminar who have not shown up 
for three or four weeks and come to find out they're really struggling with depression or they've developed an alcohol abuse disorder or they're lacking funds so they're having to work full time. It's been kind of heartbreaking. I talk about granting COVID grace, so I've been very supportive and forgiving of these students. Um, I don't know how long we can do that. I don't know if what sort of COVID grace do you see parents granting their kids at home? Are they letting them slip by on things or are they relaxing? Is that not good to do? Each family sets their values. And I think we want to be have as much structure in the family and be clear with our expectations. If a child comes home and they're incredibly upset and they just go to their room and slam the door, you can give them a little grace because you know they're coming home maybe from the worst week back to school after a year, but then they need to talk about it. But how do you balance that? I don't give them so much grace that you get away with it. On the other hand, you know, you give them a little bit of slack. You also look for patterns. Are there patterns of difficulties that they're showing? And that may give you a little bit of an alarm system to say, maybe we need a little bit more help as a family. There was a book written years ago by uh, Beck and Peck and the psychiatrist. And his first opening chapter was the healthiest people are the people who seek help. And in fact, resilient people know when to ask for help because we are not islands. And as we started the show, we are not alone. So if there's too much difficulty, look to get help, whether it's other family members or the school counselor like Phyllis or a mental health professional or the pediatrician, a religious leader that you trust, don't have to be alone with it. And then parenting becomes, you know, there's no one manual on how you parent and especially no manual during a pandemic. Parents often ask me, particularly in the last several months, how do you know if your child needs outside professional help? And I respond, yes, because right now everybody is having a really hard time. And I had a student in here who was really having a hard time. And she was in here because the teacher had told me she was having a hard time. But I said to this child, you can come on your own. And she said, I can just come. I mean, it was this mind blowing moment. I don't think kids often intuitively know to ask for help. That's actually a skill in and of itself that we have to teach them, even all the way through middle school, if not well into high school, maybe even college, as Tim would know. I had one student come in and the first visit, they were very upset because their parents were, you know, quote unquote, making them get therapy. A couple days later, they came back and they said, Miss Fagel, I love therapy. It's like the best thing I've ever done. All they do is listen to you and they make you feel like you're right. <laughs> and she was so excited. And I told her, I shared that with her parents who said, well, she can have at it because we're thrilled that she wants to continue. So often parents might worry that they're forcing their child to get help. But even if they're initially resistant, they may very much appreciate it once they get started. I just want to follow up on that because in the works of resilience are the stories of the kids who have made it through really terrible adversities, but also things like learning disabilities, ADHD, anxiety. And if we can teach them the skill of asking for help and advocating for themselves, then we know that will follow them through life. And they can learn to say what it is they need 
what it is they want and how are we going to get there, especially thinking of kids who then go off to college. I mean, these poor high school juniors and seniors whose last year were, have really been disrupted and now we're launching them to go off to college or a trade school or maybe to a job, but they have to be able to advocate for themselves. Therapy isn't for all the answers, I would say, but seeking assistance and and really recognizing is your child's patterns really shifted dramatically? Are they suddenly just in their rooms? You know, teens are in their rooms a lot and don't want to talk to us, but are they also just not talking to peers? Have other things shifted? Are they just not doing work? As parents, we need to keep mindful and watchful eyes on them and then say, look, these are all the different ways that you can get help, including, you know, the family. I had a teacher recently share that she had a student, this was at another school, who came to all of the classes, participated fully in class, was extremely engaged and yet never handed anything in. And she was trying to get to the root of what was going on. And it turned out it was anxiety. The child was too anxious and couldn't get started. And so teachers are also a really great source of information. Sometimes your child might not be talking to you, but they're talking to someone else or someone else is picking up on something going on. So staying connected to this school, are they talking to anyone at recess? Those types of things. I run a lot of groups for kids and we talk about coping strategies, et cetera. So our rule is you have to stay on camera and participate. But with virtual school, many kids have social anxiety or whatever. They're turning their cameras off. And I think teachers and parents need to be aware of why that's happening and hopefully make sure that they're engaged. And maybe it's just the teacher said it's okay not to have your camera on and they're doing that. But that may not be the only reason. For those listeners wondering, what is the book that Dr. Alva was referring to by Peck? It's The Road Less Traveled. Yes, thank you. One of the more interesting things about that book is its opening line, which is, life is hard. Mm -hmm. And once you accept that life is hard, then you can go about the business of living it. So it really is a message of resilience in the face of adversity. You know, we've been talking about children being resilient. Do you have a sense of what it looks like when a family is resilient? I think a family is resilient and we have a lot of research on that now when they can talk to one another, whether it's at the mealtime, dinner time, which by the way, the silver lining is more families are actually eating together during the pandemic than I think they had ever before. So having conversations, communication is really key to being a resilient family and then really being able to problem solve and saying this is hard and we can do something about it optimism is acknowledging the difficulties and being able to say yes but there are many things that we can do so it's taking action and feeling empowered as a family you know when the pandemic first you know everybody went into shutdown and we had to talk about what did the family feel as safe. I said to parents, it's important to tell them what you're doing to try and maximize everybody's safety. It's that feeling of we're doing the best we can. You know, so many families have major economic hardship 
during this time. They have lost jobs. They have lost family members or friends or neighbors. So there's a lot of sadness with this pandemic. Just being able to acknowledge it and talk about that openly, I think is key to you know family resilience. I know that for me, one of the hardest things as a parent myself of three kids, uh, including one of those seniors in high school right now, is to remember that my job isn't to shield them from discomfort, but to help them recover when they experience it. And I know that parents really, especially if they can fix something easily, if it's something that seems like it has an easy fix, want to jump in, which is really at odds with developing resilience. How can parents walk that line between supporting without fixing and be that person who is there for their child, but allows them to safely experience those bumps? It's so hard, particularly if you have children who tend to be more anxious, you just want to jump in and do it. I think we have to think about if we had a very young child, we would help guide them with our fingers to walk, but we're not going to walk for them. And as they get older, our job is to really help them develop that increasing independence. And sometimes it means just shutting your mouth as a parent saying, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, stop. I know I can do it, but I want to teach my son, daughter how to do it on their own. You know, you mentioned not having them distress, but actually we know that we all need to learn to tolerate distress because we're in distress a lot of times. If we have a headache, we're in distress. We need to learn how to take some action, what we can do about it, get more sleep or go to sleep and take a nap. The same with emotional distress. We need to be able to tolerate a certain amount. And so we're giving a gift of tolerance if we let kids sort of sit with some things. Now, of course, if they're to the extreme of distress, we want to comfort them, but that's when we want to say, all right, what is it going to take as a whole for us to be able to comfort, not just you to comfort the child? I love that. And I'm just going to share some research that hopefully supports what Mary is saying, which is that kids who are young adults who graduate during a recession and have trouble finding a job actually experience more joy, gratitude, and satisfaction later in life. And the person who did that research, who was a parent of younger children, told me that whenever she's tempted to solve something for her child, she reminds herself to let them sit with the discomfort a little bit longer. And she has to build up her own muscle for letting them sit with that discomfort. It's hard because we want to take care of it. If they fall, we want to immediately pick them up. But the best thing is to say, all right, you know, I had three boys. So we went to the ER a lot <laughs> for broken bones. But I had to assess, was the fall bad enough that it, they were really seriously hurt? Or would they recover pretty quickly and say, all right, you know, get back up. Let's take a look. Let's figure it out. One of the challenging things about having children who are resilient, especially if they're very bright, is that sometimes the assumption is made that if I'm smart enough and I think it through hard enough, I can solve just about anything, which doesn't really work in the domain of emotions or difficult interpersonal relationships. And so I've seen really bright kids struggle because their mind can't get them out of that trap. And so your notion about making room for what they're feeling and maybe what can't be solved is another form of resilience, it seems. 
You know, it is. It's acknowledging. And it's so much has to do with expectations because sometimes we see kids and they do so well in school and we just assume they can do everything well. And that gets back to what I started with in the beginning. We all make mistakes and none of us are perfect and we all have strengths, but we also have some things we're not as good at. Acknowledging that gives us more strength. And we also want to be grateful for what we have. And I think that gets to maybe some of what Phyllis meant with that study. It's like, if you have to put effort into something and you work hard, it is so much more meaningful than if you just did it and it was easy as pie. You get a grade and it was really hard and you had to study a lot. It's that emotional burst. It's like, I did it. I can do it. Whereas often we take things for granted and that's what we have to worry about. So challenges, challenging enough is really good, but you also want to be realistic. Are there any mistakes that parents make that are well-meaning beyond trying to fix their kids' problems or maybe even misconceptions they have about resilience that you can clarify right now? What I've heard sometimes is parents say things like, I don't think you can do it. And they think that they are setting up something to motivate their children, where in fact, it's working backwards. And so sometimes they'll say things like, well, why didn't you do better on that? Again, I think with the notion that they're motivating, but it's really not. We want to acknowledge what goes well, but we also want to acknowledge maybe that this you can put a little bit more effort into. So as parents, we're not perfect. We may be irritable one day and say something that we regret. To those parents, I say, this is not a done deal. You just say to your child, teen, I thought about what I said and my intention was this, but I know what came out was totally different and I was irritable and I was stressed. So acknowledge that we all make mistakes as parents. There's no perfect parent or there would be the perfect parent book (laughs) and there is none. It's probably uh, time for us to wrap up. Uh, You've raised a lot of interesting ideas and offered some very meaningful suggestions for parents. Anything else that you might want to leave parents or parents of teens with? Find a kind of a calm place in your mind so that you can calm your body. And, you know, when you need to, even if you're in a room, I have this beach that we've gone to for many years. And I have this image in my mind. I can go to that beach in the middle of a conversation. (laughs) If we can learn to like bring down our heart level, bring down our body so that it's a little calmer. And the same for teens, you know, during the pandemic, I've been taking many, many walks through woods and discovered creeks that I knew never knew existed. But it's a way to sort of really pull ourselves in and center ourselves. That's the message. And that's part of regulating ourselves is helping us be resilient as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Been a pleasure. Bye. And that's our show. Special thanks today to our presenting sponsor, Trussell Tree. To learn more about the good work they do, visit www.trusseltree.com. You can listen and subscribe to Finding Anchor on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you do your listening. 
If you liked this episode, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing the show with a friend. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye now.